This morning, uh, we uh, return now uh, to Peter's closing exhortations to churches in Asia Minor who were suffering, who were suffering to one degree or another as a result of their saving relationship and loyalty to the risen and glorified Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, this is all familiar to you if you've been with us as we're picking back up now. And we're going to pick back up where we left off last time, right in verse 8. So, I would invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 8 and 9 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's a blue one, probably, underneath the seat around you. It is there for you to use. In that Bible, you can turn to page 1016, and that'll bring you to uh, our section this morning. All right? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is a true gift, a true gift. May we treasure it as we should, Father. And as we open it this morning and look at these passages, help us to rightly understand it, Father, and to, and to apply these things to our lives. By your Holy Spirit's power, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, let me, uh, let me read the passage, and then we'll get started. The Apostle Peter wrote this, Be sober-minded. Again, we're picking up right in the middle of his section here. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. First, let me just point something out that other commentators have pointed out. There really is a very stark contrast between verse 8 and the verses just before it that we covered last week. In verses 6 through 7 that Chris was referring to that I, I went through last week, Peter exhorts there the believers in, um, in the various churches in, in Asia Minor. He, he exhorts the believers to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, the sovereign deliverer. Humble themselves under that mighty hand, so at the proper time he may exalt you, he may lift you up, casting all their anxieties on him because he cares for them. But then in verse 8, Peter turns his reader's attention, and this is the stark contrast, to the sinfully proud one, to the sinfully proud one, the devil, who is not humble, who is not the sovereign deliverer. He is limited in his power, and he is a destroyer. And in his pride, he seeks only to exalt himself, not others. He seeks to lift himself up. And we see that, for instance, in, from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. I'll just read it to you. Many Bible scholars see this passage, and I agree as uh, more here than a reference to the king of Babylon, but also a reference to the satanic one, that is the devil, that is Lucifer. There, the prophet Isaiah writes, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And one writer speaking to this says that this speaks to the king of Babylon and 
and I agree, to the devil who energized him. It's a, a picture of Satan himself looking to exalt himself above God. Continuing with the contrast, not only does the devil not care at all about the Christian's true welfare, as God does, as we saw in verse 7, but he actually sets out to devour them. Verse 8. So the contrast is there. It's serious. And just wanted to point that out to you. Now, recently, in our monthly men's Bible study, some of uh, the men of Summit, they did a video study together through... Uh, or f- uh, from the author R.C. Sproul. It was titled Pleasing God. Pleasing God. That study ended in May. We went on summer break. We will begin a new study in September. And men, I want to encourage you, if you've never attended, to come. I want to invite you to come and be a part of whatever study we'll be doing as we look at the Word of God together and grow in it. Anyway, one of the lectures in the Pleasing God study was titled, The Battle with the Devil. The Battle with the Devil. Uh, R.C. Sproul introduced this material by saying the following. He said this, In our modern culture, to speak about Satan is to attract ridicule. Our culture has decided that Satan is a myth. And many Christians have followed this way of thinking. So not necessarily they think he's a myth, but they act as if he is. Other Christians have gone to the opposite extreme, virtually attributing to Satan divine attributes such as omnipresence. So basically what he's saying, from one extreme to another, people go from Satan's nowhere, that's ridiculous, there is no such individual or creature or entity, he doesn't exist, to the other extreme, he exists and he's everywhere. Like he's omnipresent. He's under here. He's in my car. He's behind this chair. Okay? Uh, both are wrong. Both are inaccurate. And as the writer goes on to point out, it's unlikely, when we think about Satan, it's unlikely that Satan himself comes after us directly. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. God is omnipresent. He is not. He is a created being. But it's unlikely then that he comes after us directly, for he is not omnipresent. He can only go after one person at a time. And if he's doing that, he's probably going after targets who have great influence over the world and the church. Okay? So I think it's just even pride. People are so, they think they're like such a big deal. They're like, yeah, Satan's after me. Okay, all right. I, him personally after you? Probably not. Probably not. But. He does. He is behind the attacks that come, the satanic attacks that come after you. So in that sense, certainly, and the writer goes on to say he sends his evil minions after the entire church. That is for sure. And minions are not the little yellow guys, but demons, demons, real vicious demons. All right? Yeah, these are not fun, you know, wonderful things that we, uh, we laugh at. These are evil, vile, wicked. They are... They are, uh, and they're being directed by the evil one, Satan himself, and they are after the church. They're after you. They're after me. And one of the things that, uh, the reason I brought up this study is one of the things R.C. Sproul brought up in the study is that several, and, and by the way, several of the men after the study said to me that they had not known, so that was kind of neat, they'd never heard this, was during the Middle Ages, during the Middle Ages, the people were very sensitive to the reality of the devil, maybe oversensitive. 
uh, and they wanted to do something to fight back against him. So they decided that a good strategy would be to hit him where they believed him to be the most vulnerable, which they determined was his pride. All right? So how did they determine to attack his pride in the medieval ages? The writer goes on to point out, after determining that Satan's pride was a good avenue of attack, the evil one was routinely depicted as having horns, cloven feet, you know, like weird-looking feet like that, split like a pig, and other such things that we normally associate with cartoon illustrations of the devil today. It was thought that these caricatures would weaken Satan by deflating his pride. In other words, beloved, they made fun of him through illustrations, thinking that that would somehow uh, be a way to beat up on Satan, you know? Draw ridiculous pictures of Satan, make fun of his personhood, I guess, uh, and that would somehow um, be a, a, a punch to his ego. And, you know, so that's what they thought. Uh, he goes on to say, unfortunately, many people are unaware of the origin of this depiction, these cartoonish figures, of the devil. And having seen only the silly illustration of Satan, do not take him seriously at all. This is the first mistake we can make whenever we consider the devil. The evil one is real indeed, and he is looking for those whom he may devour. And then he references 1 Peter 5, 8-9, which is where we are this morning. So you get the idea? So people just look at those pictures and they think, you know, Satan. Oh my goodness, he doesn't look that scary to me. His little silly ears, his little pitchfork, and the tail, and the hoven, you know, the, the feet, the cloven feet. Uh, and so, obviously, that is not what Satan looks like. That was an attempt to try to attack his pride, but people have considered those things and just thought, there's nothing to this guy, this is all silliness. But it is not the case. This is not silliness, and he is real, and he is a very real threat. The Apostle Peter knows that, and so has declared to us through this letter that the evil one is a very uh, real, dangerous threat to us. And by the way, Peter has personal experience. As you might recall, you remember Jesus told the Apostle Peter in Luke 22, 31, Simon, Simon, which is uh, Peter, it's his original name, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This is a real being, a real being who uh, looks to destroy God's people because he hates God, therefore he hates God's people. So, in light of the realities of this very real enemy, our adversary, then we must not mistakenly underestimate him, okay, or uh, be apathetic about him. We must not do that, Christian. So, with that introduction, let's take a closer look at our text. The Apostle Peter writes this, looking back at verse 8. He says, first, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. We've looked at this word before. Uh, Peter has used it earlier in the letter. It basically means, the way I would understand it, is to be clear-headed, to be clear-headed or to be disciplined 
concerning your mind. Exercise mental self-control. Mental self-control. Don't allow yourself to be lulled into a spiritual drowsiness by the intoxicating matters of the world and thereby become insensitive to the real dangers around you. Be sober-minded. Exercise mental self-control. There's a lot of things that want to crowd in there uh, as we move throughout the world that can cause or bring about an intoxicating effect that would leave you drowsy concerning spiritual matters. Be sober-minded. Exercise self-control mentally. Be on guard spiritually. Be thinking spiritually. And then he, he adds to that, be watchful, be watchful. The New American Standard Bible translates it, be on the alert, or another translation says, or be alert, okay? So it's more than just being awake. He's not just saying, hey, be awake. No, be on the alert, be clear-headed, be disciplined in your thinking, right? Have self-control up here. Don't let the, all the affairs of the world come in and cause you to just become kind of sleepy to spiritual matters where you're not even thinking about those things and be on the alert. Another uh, definition that you could use uh, for that Greek word is be vigilant. That would be an appropriate translation as well. Be vigilant. So, you know, an example of using that word in a sentence is someone might say, the burglar was spotted by vigilant neighbors, right? So what does that mean? Vigilant neighbors. Well, it means that they were watching. They were uh, keeping a lookout, like a neighborhood watch program, right? They're looking for dangers. And because they were looking, they spotted the robber, or in this case, spotted the adversary, the devil. They saw him. Not like they really saw him, but they see his tactics. They see him at work. They see what he's trying to do. Clear-headed, watchful, on the alert, vigilant. They are to, we are to, these Christians, and we, by extension, are to give attention to approaching danger. What danger? What danger? You know, there's a lot of dangers in the world we could give our attention to, you know, the coming economic collapse, I guess, or, you know, or Russia, right? A lot, a lot of dangers out there. But one we must give our attention to is this one. We miss this, we're in trouble, Christians, brothers and sisters. Look back at the verse. What danger? What are we, what are we to keep careful watch for? What danger? Verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil, a real person, a very real adversary, pictured here as a roaring lion, is out looking for someone to devour. He's on the prowl. That's the danger, beloved. That's the very real danger. One writer says, many of God's people are vulnerable to Satan's attacks because they're not alert to spiritual danger. If a real lion were on the prowl and had just been spotted outside... Would you go for a casual stroll, admiring the flowers? 
that's what Sproul's comment was. Many Christians do treat the matter like that, like it's insignificant. They're not on alert. They're not even, it doesn't even come upon their radar. Oh, they have a lot of things on their mind, but not this. And that's a mistake. Just a, a side note, you know, the, our adversary here that Peter is pointing out is the devil. So we got to remember that and we got to be aware of that. And as we get into it, he's looking to destroy believers. Spouses, your adversary is not your spouse. Just I thought I'd throw this in, just for a little marriage counseling right here. Your adversary is not your spouse. They may act adversarial towards you <laughs> at times or for seasons. <laughs> but they are not the real enemy. The real enemy seeks to destroy your marriage. So he is looking to get in there, and he is looking to turn you against one another. So Christians need to be aware. Who's the real enemy here? Husbands, wives, who's the real enemy? Your spouse? It is not. God has joined you together to live for him and glorify him. The real enemy is your adversary, the devil who is looking and seeking and prowling, waiting for the opportunity to break in there and level that marriage. So join forces, husband and wife, in Christ against your real enemy. Stop fighting one another. All right. That was just extra. Now notice that Peter refers to the devil, as I was saying, as your adversary. The Greek word was used to speak of an opponent, an opponent in a lawsuit, okay? It was used technically that way. It was also used to refer to any hostile or antagonistic enemy, okay? So the English word adversary used for the Greek word here by the ESV, the translation uh, I preach out of, and many other good Bible translations, that word adversary is defined in the Webster's Dictionary as one that contends with, opposes, or resists. Okay? One that contends with, opposes, or resists. So that makes sense then that the translators would use the English translators would choose adversary then for that Greek word. It fits. It's a good word. Adversary. It's active opposition. Okay? Uh, some translations of the Bible, like, again, the NIV, popular translation, and even another one, NET, they choose to use the word enemy instead. Just enemy. Uh, I just wanted to point this out. That's a valid translation choice, enemy. But I would prefer the word, personally, adversary because it captures the idea of active hostility or opposition or antagonism. So the devil, beloved, is not, is not just an enemy. He is, but he is not one over there. Like, we might have a country that we would declare to be our enemy, um, but he's, he's, it's just one level above that. He is, he is one who is seriously and aggressively opposing you. That's why I like the word adversary. 
He is active in his opposition. Yes, he's your enemy, but he's actively opposing you. He's seeking to contend with you and resist you in your walk of faith, in your life with Christ. Okay? He opposes God. He opposes God's people actively. So adversary is a good term. Now, let's consider the imagery that Peter uses to describe our adversary. He doesn't just say, your adversary, the devil, is out to get you, right? That's not what the text says. Rather, that he, that adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So listen, Peter doesn't liken our adversary, the devil, to a red guy with horns on his head cloven feet, and a pitchfork out looking to poke you with it, right? Which is how he is in modern, or even in the medieval times, kind of how he was illustrated or portrayed. The apostle Peter does not imagine him or illustrate him that way for you. Rather, he chooses a very ferocious and powerful predator within the wild, a lion, one that devours its prey, devours its prey. Now, I was thinking about this. I, I bet if it were part of Peter's experience, he would have chosen a Tyrannosaurus Rex over a lion. I mean, I can only guess. I don't know these things are certain. So he might say, uh, your adversary, the devil, goes about like a raging Tyrannosaurus Rex seeking someone to devour. And you'd be like, whoa! Right? It's imagery. But Peter didn't dwell with dinosaurs. However, he would have been familiar with lions, okay? And so would have his readers. So he draws his imagery for the devil our adversary, and his desire to communicate the seriousness of this threat, he draws it from the lion, from the lion. Now, we are somewhat familiar with lions, although we don't, we're not really up close to the wild. We've seen them in zoos and such, I guess, or maybe on television. Here's some interesting lion facts. One uh, thing I found says lions are extremely powerful, as you may already know. By using only a grip on its rump, they can grab and throw a fully grown zebra. I mean, that's, that's intimidating. Just, and they just toss it like it's candy. A heavy blow to the head of an antelope using a forepaw is sufficient to stun the animal. They just level it, drop, and then they would devour it. Lions are a serious threat in the wild to the rest of the wildlife. The wildlife knows how serious lions are and what a danger they are. For us, maybe not so much because, again, we don't live up close to them and, or they are behind cages where we feel somewhat protected. Lions are very capable hunters, right? And maybe you've seen some of this on YouTube or maybe you couldn't watch because it was too sad, but uh, they can even take down a massive beast like an elephant, an elephant. When you think an elephant kind of walks through uh, the jungle and does what it wants, right? But when a lion wants it, it has its way with it. 
One uh, writer adds, aside from humans, lions are the only predators powerful enough to kill an elephant. Okay, so we, we have weapons, guns, big guns, not your little 45, but a big gun to kill an elephant, but the only other predator to do it is a lion. The males, it goes on to say, male lions being 50% heavier than the females are especially suited to the task. It typically takes seven lionesses, a female lion, to kill an elephant, but just two males could do the same. Even a single male can overpower a young elephant. Okay, so again, just giving you some facts as to the degree of power uh, and ferociousness and killing ability and strength that lions possess. Notice also that Peter says the devil, your adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion, right? Roaring lion, not just a lion. Why? Well, um, let me get to that. But here's some additional lion facts concerning roaring, just for fun, as we consider this, this imagery. Uh, it, we are told that only four cats can roar, the lion, tiger, the leopard, and the jaguar. Of these cats, the lion roars the most. And when a lion roars, it can do so with enough force to raise a cloud of dust. Roar! You know, you just see dust comes up. Okay, that, so what's that tell you? That's some intensity, man, right? Intense. What kind of animal produces that kind of, just from their mouth. Uh, goes on, another writer says, lions use different calls when communicating with each other. So they, they meow, they roar, they grunt, they moan, they growl, they snarl, they, pur- they purr, they hum, they puff, and they woof. Each sound has a different meaning, but the most famous of these calls is the roar. It is one of the loudest calls in the animal kingdom and can be heard from up to almost five miles away. That's kind of far. Okay, that's really far, actually. That's really loud. It's so very loud, very intense. You know, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Lion King. Um, maybe a good number of you, I don't know. But in that, uh, no, Senia, you haven't seen it? All right. Ask someone, you should get it. It's pretty, pretty good watch. Uh, but for those of you who are familiar, if you remember that scene where Simba, uh, uh, Mufasa's, I'm sorry, uh, wait, who's the father? Thank you. Sorry, Senia. Uh, Mufasa, son, little guy, he's just a little guy, gets caught by some hyenas, and he decides he's going to try to intimidate them and scare them, so he lets out his little roar. Roar! 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 Because he's still small. And the, the hyenas are laughing, and then all of a sudden, when, when little Simba opens his mouth one more time, what they hear is, and of course, his dad is you know, standing behind him and lets it out. And they're terrified. They're terrified. The hyenas are frightened. And that is the reality of that roar. That's the kind of response that it appropriately should produce. There's a great deal of speculation among commentators about the roaring. Like, and I mean, I've read all kinds of stuff. Uh, and I think a lot of it is, I don't know how helpful it is. And it's a lot, just a lot of speculation. And they're trying to figure out, what is Peter indicating by including the idea of roaring? Uh, One says it pictures him ravenously hungry, you know, intent on capturing prey. Ravenously hungry? 
I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know. Did they, have they seen in the wild, the lion goes, Roar! and they're like, hey, why'd you do that? I'm really hungry! Oh, okay, so that's, that's clearly what it indicates. I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure we can make those connections. Um, but here's my take on it. I think it's really simple, honestly. I don't think he's trying to go really deep here into why he includes the word roaring, and we've got to figure out all these, these, these tricky kind of messages he's sending. I mean, people will go even farther and go, okay, because he uses the roar to intimidate, so Satan tries to intimidate, so don't be afraid. I Honestly, I don't think it's any of that. Um, let me tell you what I think it is. I think it's real simple. As I just told you, I explained to you the roar. It's intense. It's powerful. It's frightening. It is that. It's frightening, but it, it demonstrates something, the, 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 this beast, how mm, powerful they are, really. Uh, and with their mouth closed, listen, with their mouth closed, they look like, uh, if you've looked at a lion, they really look like just big, beautiful cats. I mean, they're gorgeous. You look at a lion's mane, and he's kind of, he's got that nice nose, and his eyes are kind of, I mean, sleepy, you know, and, and as long as he keeps that mouth shut, you would not know otherwise, really. I mean, he looks nice. In fact, you, um, almost harmless, kind of laying on the ground, which they typically are, just laying there, and they're kind of like this, mouth closed, no problem, no problem. Uh, you, you know, you see a trainer come up with uh, to them, and you've seen pictures of this, maybe they rub them, and just like your, uh, if you have cats, or have experience with cats, they rub them back like this, everything seems fine, totally cool animal, right? In fact, it's fascinating if you just want to check this out when you get home. The, the thing I thought of when I read the text because uh, when I grew up and I went and saw movies, MGM, pictures made movies. And so one of the first, first things that came to my mind was their, um, they have like a circle, and in the middle of the circle was a roaring lion. It would be an MGM pictures. Roar! Right? And you're like, whoa. Right? So that was their thing. But I went back and saw the evolution of that, that illustration or that uh, symbol they were using. And when they first started out, I don't know, they were having problems, I guess, because the cat kind of just sits in the middle and goes, and they keep changing it because they're trying to get the cat to react, I guess. And so over the years, it changed. It didn't used to be this intimidating, roar! And so you see that. So if you go back to the original MGM, uh, so that was prior to, I guess, I was growing up and watching movies, it was not intimidating at all. You just think, oh, look at the nice pretty kitty, right? But, uh, but when they roar, right, I... I then all of those kind of images in your mind or thinking go out the door. You don't think, nice kitty. And not only do you hear this, this sound that creates dust around it, but you see those teeth, right? You know this is a killing machine. This is a real threat. A, a lion roars like that, you don't go, oh, nice kitty. No, you're, are you out of your mind? Right, you back up. You know the seriousness of this animal. I think... Honestly, I think that's all that Peter's trying to indicate by using the word uh, roar. It's, 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 a, it's this incredible ferociousness and viciousness that exists within this, this muscle mass, this thing called a lion. In this case, it is that same ferociousness and viciousness that we are to understand to be in our adversary. You don't take him lightly. He is not a, he's not a pleasant kitty. He's not someone you, you, you can pet or tame. 
He is a roaring lion, prowling about, looking for someone to devour. That's the imagery, Peter. He, he, that's why he's using the imagery, to get their attention. And, and it would be imagery that they would be somewhat familiar with, so they immediately should snap them too. This is serious. Devour. That word he uses, devour, it means swallow. Swallow up something. This is, the lion doesn't nibble. He, he looks to devour. The same term, by the way, that's used here is used in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Jonah. In Jonah 1.17, where it talks about the great fish swallowing Jonah. Gone. The imagery, beloved, implies that the adversary is not looking to just wound someone. All right? Nick them. Get them to bleed a little. But rather, he is seeking to utterly destroy them. The danger is very serious. It could not be higher. You know, and what might that look like, destroy the Christian? Well, make them useless for God. Right? Turn them from God. Turn them from God's people. Turn them against one another. Make them useless for God so that they might have no impact on this world. In other words, the enemy, your adversary, the devil, is looking to take you out of the game, take you out of the battle, take you off mission, leave you desolate, make you no longer a threat to him. That's what he's looking to do. Now verse 9. This is so rich. The Apostle Peter, you get this imagery, it's serious. So you might expect him to say, Run! As fast as you can! Flee! Hide! Right? Like we're trained, you know, in all the terrorism training, right? You're, I, I guess even in terrorism training, they say, you know, you try to resi- you, you block the doors, and then you try to fight back, and then you run and hide. So even that, that's, that's a good, I could have used that as an illustration. But listen, you would think, I mean, normally you would tell your kids, if you see a lion, you know, you got to get out of there. But here is Peter's instructions. Resist him. This ferocious beast who's out on the prowl seeking to shipwreck you to level you, to take you out of the game, to ruin you, Christian, resist him. Firm in your faith. Don't run. Don't flee. Don't hide. The, another translation of the Bible, instead of saying resist him, translates it, stand up to him. Take a stand against him. Now, I, I thought I'd share this with you because I'd like to... I just think it's important, especially in our culture. One pastor says, resisting Satan, and we'll get to what it it means, but it does not mean rebuking, binding, or defeating him. 
Resisting simply refers to our refusal to submit to him and our standing fast against his onslaughts by divine enablement. In other words, by the power of God, by the grace of God. We don't have, I don't have any ability in and of myself to resist the devil, but by God's strength and help and power and spirit, I can and I must. He goes on to say, I hear many Christians doing these things, rebuking, binding, defeating, you know, defeating him, and yet, and I agree with them, I see no command to do so and no example of the saints having done so. What Peter says, he doesn't say, bind him. I bind you in the name of Jesus. That, he doesn't say that. He says, resist him. And we're going to look at what that means. He doesn't say even rebuke him. He says, resist him. Stand up against him. Now, this is interesting. I found it interesting. Again, doing research on lions. Lions frequently suffer injuries when killing dangerous game. And, and dangerous game is such like a giraffe or even a zebra. They are actually dangerous for the zebras, sorry, for the lions to go after. It's because of their kicking ability. And it goes on to say they have been known to back down when the prey species stands its ground. A carefully placed kick from a zebra to a lion's face can break a jaw or remove an eye. So it's, it's interesting. So I think it, there's some appropriateness here for Peter to say, resist him. And it fits perfectly with what James says and what we know about lions as well. Uh, 4.7, James 4.7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Run and he'll run after you. Hide and he'll find you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But now we need to know, resist him how? So I said it wasn't binding or rebuking. It wasn't those things. Well, I think, I think the NIV, and again, the NIV tries to make it more readable, to try to communicate what what they believe is being communicated in the text, and maybe it's, you know, and they're trying to bring it all over into the English. So sometimes they'll add words uh, that are not there to help you understand the meaning. They're trying to get at the meaning. But I think they're, and so sometimes I don't think they get it right. Here, I think they get it right. 1 Peter 5, 9, the NIV translates it this way. Resist him, comma, standing firm in the faith. Standing firm in the faith, okay? So one commentator says that standing firm in the faith, that is, like, that is likely correct, and what they're, what, they're, what they're helping you see is that there's an imperative idea. It's implied anyway in the text. So in our translation, the ESV, resist him firm in your faith. The implied command is you resist him, how? By standing Firm in the faith. It's implied. It's not explicit, but it's implied. Therefore, the NIV translates it as such into the English. So the, the commentator goes on to say, Peter was not simply saying that believers are firm in the faith. He explained what resistance to the devil truly means. This is what it means. Being firm in your faith. Or they add an extra word, standing firm in your faith. The imperative idea. How do you resist him? Standing firm in the faith. 
Another commentator says, resist him. How do we oppose Satan? Peter says, and again, he's a, this uh, commentator is agreeing with that thought by standing firm in the faith. Now listen, the Greek word translated standing firm, it means solid. It means solid, like immovable, balanced, solid. So this is, in respect to faith, the believer must be solid and unmovable. If you could think of like a table, a table that is balanced, it's solid. It doesn't rock, it doesn't shake. It's interesting, um, John MacArthur points out, and I thought this was interesting, the word is, it's the same word where we get our word stereo, our English word stereo. It's derived from this Greek word, stereo, and that idea is it's balanced in the left and the right. So that's how, we've, that's how it's come to be used now. But here, that same idea, balanced, solid, unshakable, unmovable, all right? Solid. The word faith, so we're to be solid, firm, in the faith. How do we resist them? By being solid, firm, immovable in the faith. Okay, now the word faith, it could be understood subjectively. So it could be Peter speaking of one's personal faith or trust in God. Stand firm in your trust in God. Some commentators see it that way. I don't. I don't see it that way. It's possible. But it's also possible and more likely that he's speaking objectively of an objective faith. That is, as one commentator points out, the body of Christian doctrine, our faith, what we, those things we believe about God, those things that we are told to believe here in the Scriptures, that body of Christian doctrine. It is that that we are to stand firm in in order to resist him, our adversary, so that he would flee. The writer goes on to say, here the context favors the objective sense. Peter refers not so much to the faith of the individual as to the faith or beliefs of the worldwide body of believers. Thus, the term faith relates to the teachings of the Christian church. And I would agree with that. I believe that's the right way to understand it. So, beloved, that would include, um, when we talk about the, the teachings of the Christian church, what, is the, what does the church teach? Yes! Who said that? My son-in-law. Uh, it's the truth of the, for sure, it's the truth of the gospel, beloved. For sure, it includes that, the truth of the gospel that you and I, in order to resist the attacks of the devil, our adversary, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It is these truths, the truths of the gospel, that we must be standing firm in in order to resist him and cause him to turn and walk away, to flee. Uh, this is why we... we uh, Goodness, it was like even the music that we were singing this morning, those were the truths of the gospel. Those aren't just pleasant to sing. They are. But they are necessary for you to absorb into your mind and in your heart and meditate on and keep before you so that when the enemy comes, you bring that to bear on him. And he is defeated in that by standing firm in the gospel. It's why I hand out the cross-centered life when people come into membership. 
I've said that before. It's not because it's a cheap book and we're cheap. No, although it is cheap and that helps, but it's because that book is centered on the cross. You need the truth of the cross. You need to be grounded in those things. It's, it's why I recommend a book like New Morning Mercies. A good friend gave me that book. A, dev- a daily devotional. Why? Because every day it's just giving you gospel-saturated truths. Let those things run through your mind. That's the thing you're going to need if you have any chance of resisting the devil. Hold that thought. I'll connect it in a second. A really quick one here. How does the adversary look to attack Christians? How does he look? Now remember, resist him. Firm, I would say, in your faith, in the faith, in the Christian, in the doctrines, Christian doctrines of the church, in the gospel, in the truths of the gospel. That's how you resist him. That's how you stand firm. Well, as one writer points out, how does it, how, when we just think about how does the adversary attack? He's prowling around, he's looking for someone to devour, but what's his attack look like? Well, he, is, as one writer says, and his forces, they're always looking, they're always active, and they're looking for opportunities really just to overwhelm the believer with temptation, persecution, and discouragement, right? They're looking to destroy them that way, okay? So they think about the strategy. So this, this church is suffering. They're undergoing a level of persecution. They're feeling that, right? So that's starting to, to come upon them, to bear upon them. And, it, and so then they start thinking, like, what is going on? What is happening? Now remember who the devil is, according to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He said, Jesus Christ said, of the devil in John 8, 44, he is a liar and the father of lies. He's a liar, and he's the father of lies. Okay, stick with me. In Revelation 20, at the great end of all things, Satan is released from his thousand-year imprisonment. Released from his prison, it says in verse 7, in the end. And will come out to do what? Deceive the nations. He's going to lie to them and convince them if you can believe this, to go and fight against God. That's some serious deception. He is a liar. He's a deceiver. He is a twister of the truth. Yes? So here's these suffering Christians being persecuted, no doubt, by those who are of the devil. Satan's minions, Satan's tools on the earth because they're still enslaved to him to do his will. Bringing that pressure, bringing that potential discouragement, yeah? Right? And with it bringing temptation to maybe think things they shouldn't think or feel things they shouldn't feel. One writer says, his strategy, the devil, is often to hit you when you're under some intense trial, by suggesting either God isn't strong enough to deliver you, or 
Obviously, he doesn't care. If this is how he treats his people, then why are you following him? Those very issues were probably in the minds and hearts of these people to whom Peter was writing because of the things that we see. He's saying, listen, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked that these things are occurring. I got to tell you, though, that their occurring is under the sovereign, mighty hand of God, and he is going to bring good for you and glory to him through it. That's what you need to know. That's what you need to believe. God's got you. He cares for you. He loves you. And this is part of his loving care for you. He's going to transform you. He's going to conform you to the image of his beloved son through these things. You've got to believe that. Satan brings more opposition. And with that, he comes along and he lies. He deceives. God doesn't care about you. Why are you following him? He must not care about, or maybe there must be something wrong with you. You see, the writer goes on to say, maybe, and maybe you do sin. Maybe you, you sin in these matters. You don't respond like you're supposed to. So what does he do? Then what does the enemy do? Well, he accuses your conscience even after you've confessed your sin. So you've said, God, I'm sorry. I blew it. I failed. I'm weak. I doubted you. Forgive me. Help me to trust you, to know, yes, you are a great deliverer. Yes, you do care for me, right? You confess that to God. You feel it. But what happens? Your conscience continues, right? He's bringing another accusation against you. What makes you think you can be forgiven of that is the attack of the enemy, right? So how do you deal with that? How do you resist these attacks that are intended to turn you away from God, make you useless to God, leave you as nothing, bury you in the ground, devour you? How do you stand against them? I rebuke you, devil. No. You recall the truths of the gospel. You recall those, you verbalize them, you put them in your head, you, you want to claim something? Claim that, not your so-called power over the devil, which you don't have. Claim the power that is yours found in the gospel. Oh, I know God cares for me. I know he loves me. I know it because he demonstrated it. He sent his son to die for me. He has prepared a place for me. He is sovereign and working out all things for my good and his glory. These are the truths I recall, I hold on to, I stand firm in. And by that, I resist the devil. And he flees. And he flees. Beloved, this is why we want you to know the truths of the scriptures. This is why we care so much. This is why we want you to do these kind of courses. We want you to know that book and know it so well. Because that is your strength. That is your ability there. It's found there. As you recall these things, you believe these things, and then you act in line with them. You think in line with them. 
So when these thoughts come flooding in that are not accurate, that are deceptions, that are lies, you stand firm against them and you call them what they are. That is not the truth. I know the truth and I stand here by the grace of God, firm in it, immovable. And he flees because he just got kicked in the eye by the power of God in his word. You get me? This is why you got to know. This is why you got to read. This is why we, we promote books. This is why we encourage you in Bible studies. The enemy is real. He seeks to ruin you. He seeks to ruin your marriages. He seeks to destroy this church. We are without hope if we do not know the word and stand firm in it. Because that's the only way to resist him. You remember the example of Christ? Matthew 4, 1 through 11. We won't look at it. You go home and look at it. Satan comes, tempting him, twister, deceiver, even using scripture, twisted, perverted, because that's what he does to try to get Jesus to fail. And Jesus did not say, just get out of here. He didn't. I think he could have just spoke and crushed him. He could have done that, but look, he's a, he examples something for us. He models something for us. I think that's what it's about. What does he do? To every false, twisted Thing that Satan does in response, what does Jesus do? He quotes the word of God back to him. Every time, three times. Yeah, you're saying that, but God says this. And you know what the end of that story is in verse 11? Satan leaves. What else has he got? He is powerless against God's word. Well, we're out of time. So what I'm going to do is uh, I'll just save the last part of verse 9. But I'll pick up in the next slot. I'll just pick it up next time. It'll be weird, but that's what I'm going to do because we're out of time. Sorry. And I'm just not going to rush it. I'm not. Beloved. I, 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 the devil is real, okay? He's real. He's a real adversary. Your spouse is not your adversary. The church leadership is not your adversary. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, they are not your true enemy. That's, look at what the church does. They go after each other, senior, you know what I'm saying? They start thinking these lies. That's your enemy. That's not your enemy. That's your brother and sister in Christ. Your enemy is the devil. Resist him. That's a command. It's an imperative. Oppose him. How? How? The word of God standing firm in those things. And so you got to know the word. You got to be reminded of the word. You got to be living in the word. That's our only hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. May we treasure it. Oh my, what a gift indeed it is as we've been talking about week after week. We have a real enemy. How do we know that? By your word. 
But we are not left out in the cold just to be killed. No, Father, you've given us instruction. You've given us instruction. You've warned us and given us instruction about this serious threat. May we heed it. May we follow your instructions, not make something up, but live according to your instruction, resisting him, standing firm in our Christian faith, those those doctrines, those glorious doctrines. Oh, we didn't have time to talk about it, but we go back, and, and how does Peter open the letter to these suffering Christians? Man, he gives them ammunition. He talks to them about the glory of their salvation and the care of their God. That's what he tells them because that's what they need to know. So when that enemy, that rotten enemy, comes and deceives and twists, in an attempt to discourage beyond repair a believer, we stand firm in the things we know about you, God. Our heavenly Father, our loving Father, we stand firm in the hope that we have, a hope that you have established, Father, and all the promises that are ours because of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Father, help us. We are a weak bunch. May we not rely on our own strength. We have none. But may we be rooted and grounded in your powerful, almighty word. And may we make it our aim to know it and know it better. And push out all the stuff that's in our head that crowds everything out, including the scriptures. Push it out and make room. For this book, it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.